listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. And today it's the morning of Monday, the 13th of December in Seoul. And it's still the afternoon of Sunday, the 12th of December in San Francisco, California, where I am joined via Zoom by writer and translator John Cha to talk to me about his unusual relationship with high-profile defector, the late Hwang Jung-yop, and his book about Hwang and Kim Jong-il. Before we get started, please leave a review of this podcast. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription that helps to fund the excellent journalism my colleagues put out every day, as well as this podcast. Thirdly, check out nknews.org shop for our North Korean leadership chart. You can see one on the wall behind me or a fraction thereof, uh, art posters, calendars, and more. As always, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, you can send them to us at podcast at nknews.org. All right, so to introduce my guest properly, John or Haksong Cha was born in Manchuria in late 1945 and moved first to South Korea before the Korean War started and then to the United States after the April 1960 revolution that overthrew Syngman Rhee. He has since translated many works from Korean to English and written quite a number of books himself. In 2012, he published Exit Emperor Kim Jong-il, Notes from His Former Mentor, based on his extensive interviews with Hwang Jung-yop. Thanks for joining us on the show today, John Haksong Cha. <laughs> Hi, Jarko. Nice seeing you here. Oh, thank you for having me. That's a great pleasure to have you here. A little bit about your background. You were born in the city of Longjing, a Chinese city on the border with North Korea uh, in, in Manchuria uh, yes. in 1945, just after Korea's liberation from Japan. Yes. Um, some of our listeners will be familiar with Sade Suk, the first English language biographer of Kim Il-sung. He was also born there, as was uh, Yun Dong-ju, the poet. Uh, and you ended yes. up moving to uh, America as a 16-year-old after your parents sent you there to escape possible persecution by South Korean authorities following your involvement in the 1963 overthrow of Syngman Rhee. Is that right? Yeah, it was Sailgu, uh, that's what it's called, and uh, it happened in 1960. And, you know, I was just a crazy kid at that time, <laughs> 14, 15, and I joined a bunch of uh, other students. Uh, on the streets, and uh, what you see now, you know, Sejongno, Gwangamun, that's where the action was, and right. we ran through that. And some of the kids, our friends, uh, they got shot, you know, and I, I wanted to continue to run across the streets and stuff, and my father said, no, you're not going to do that. Uh, he shipped me off to Hawaii. I was 15, actually, and... Uh, to a, uh, a relative uh, who had a distant grandmother in Hawaii. She was a uh, one of those, uh, you know, worked on sugar plantations in Hawaii. Uh, she was uh, she went there as a child in 1903. Mm. So anyway, I stayed with her, and that was uh, how I got to America uh, from sort of like turmoil to yes. the palm trees in Hawaii. <laughs> and it was quite a shift <laughs> in my life. I bet. Have you ever had the opportunity to visit North Korea as an adult? Uh, no, no, I haven't. The, uh, I got as close as, close as to uh, 
Yongzhang, uh, pronounced in Chinese Rumqing, uh, my birthplace, and uh, but I never crossed into uh, North Korean proper. Uh, well, of course, I was on my mother's back when I did that as a child. Yeah, as a baby, I crossed Duman River and and now it's uh, Hantan River and old uh, 38th parallel so right. i guess you could call me a uh, early you know tagukja i guess <laughs> right very early one yes part of the, uh, <laughs> the very first wave uh, <laughs> now almost 20 years ago in 2004 you published the do or die entrepreneur uh, right. about korean american businessman john peck and somehow that led you to a meeting with hwang jung yop uh, right right before we get to that meeting, can you tell us in 25 seconds or less, who actually, who was Hwang Jung-yup? Hwang Jung-yup was uh, North Korean. He was a very important North Korean official in the uh, Communist Party, and uh, he defected uh, in 1997 to South Korea. Okay. All right. That's a, a brief sketch. And tell us, hey, how did you come to meet him through John Peck? Young uh, Peck was a uh, businessman and uh, very successful. He uh, escaped North Korea during the Korean War and came over to the United States by himself. And he distinguished himself. He became a uh, steel magnet, I could say. It's a rags riches story. And I was writing a story about him. And one of the things that he happened to run across, uh, he wanted to meet his parents, uh, his mother, and his uh, relatives in 1994 in december of 1994 he gets a call from uh general zumwalt he was the uh, joint chief of staff uh during the nixon administration uh -huh. and asked him to be uh, part of the delegation to north korea as the uh, american economic council to help north korea it was uh, so he he went to uh, Pyongyang in 1995, February 1995, and before agreeing to going there as part of the delegation, he uh, uh, you know he said, "I want to see my mother," uh, you know, and uh, if you meet that condition, uh, I'll 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 be part of the team. So mm -hmm. they said yes. So he went there, and what happened was. They didn't produce her, his mother at that time. And instead, uh, who came along was, uh, was Hong Jiang-yup. He now, came along. Was he related? Well, he was, Hong Jiang-yup was at that time was the international secretariat. Okay. And he dealt with all the you know, international uh, affairs for North Korean government. Yeah. And he came along and requested for a meeting and said, I will uh, arrange your meeting with your mother next time. Hmm. I couldn't do it this time. So he met, he met with the uh, uh, Huang, Huang and he came home. And uh, later he gets a call uh, from North Korea and said, okay, come on over. We'll, we'll, uh. So that's how he met Hong Jiang Yeo. And as I was writing uh, his biography, uh, Young Pak's biography, I uh, 
found Hong very interesting. Mm. And, you know, he, I thought he could be, he should be part of uh, my historical treaties. That's, that's what I do. Uh, Korean, Korean history is so complex yeah. that I try to use individuals or personalities to describe what was, you know, going on to uh, right. reach the public. So anyway, I said, you know, wow, Hong is very interesting. Uh, so what happened was, so young Pat came back and then he goes back to Pyongyang and he makes a, he, uh, you know, strikes a relationship with Huang and Huang asks him, you know, to uh, donate million dollars uh, to the uh, Republic, North mm -hmm. Korea. And uh, young Pat, was, was that for a specific project or just in general? In general. Okay. Uh, and, you know, Huang's, he was, as an international secretary, his main job was to, you know, uh, bring in so-called investments uh, into, but most, it, it just went to Kim Jong-il's coffers, basically. Yeah, sure. And, uh, and Young Pak said, okay, as long as uh, my, you know, U.S. government allows it, I will uh, donate a million dollars. And he wrote that letter and, and they let him see his mother and mm -hmm. his relatives. And so uh, after Hong defected to South Korea in 1997, uh, they continued to meet, and I was part of that meeting, and uh, and then I decided to uh, write this book mm -hmm. about Kim Jong Il, yeah, uh, based on Huang's opinion or Huang's point of view. Right, as you mentioned, it was in February 1997 that Huang and his aide Kim Dok Hong were traveling back to North Korea from a trip to Tokyo, which it's almost unthinkable now that high-level North Korean officials were uh, traveling to Tokyo, um, both that Japan allowed it and that North Korea allowed them to go. But uh, so there they were traveling back from Tokyo through Beijing when they entered the South Korean embassy in Beijing uh, and announced their intention to defect. Uh, and I think if I remember correctly, Huang actually used that letter that Yong Pek wrote to him kind of as what evidence of what did he use it yeah. for in the embassy? Well, he uh, originally they were going to defect in Japan, ah. and you know, and there was so much. I mean, there was so much. Uh, they were looking at you know so many uh, bodyguards, and uh, you know they were guarding him pretty tightly, so they couldn't do it. So uh, too, too many North Beijing, Korean bodyguards around him. You mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he couldn't make the move. And when he went to Beijing, he told uh, Boy Bugin. So that's the uh, state security uh, yeah. people who are in charge of, you know, guarding him. Uh, told them, this is what I'm going to Beijing for. To for collect, the money. Yeah, collect this million dollars. So right. presented that letter uh, that Young Pak had written. Right. So they so said, okay, go ahead, go to Beijing. Yeah. But, you know, this was all prearranged with the uh, uh, actually South Korean NIS intelligence right. people too. And so they knew what to do uh, when uh, Huang came to Beijing. Yeah. 
So basically Huang uh, took that letter presented to him and he got the permission to go to Beijing. And uh, he and Kim Dokong said they were going shopping. They went to a hotel and went the other side, uh, back door of the hotel. Uh, I mean, the department store. Yeah. And they picked him up and brought him to South Korean embassy. That's what happened. Yeah. Ah. Now, some people call Huang Zhangyeop the father of, of Juche ideology. Uh, yes. Is he actually the father of Juche as it's practiced in North Korea? Or did he become that when he came to Seoul and kind of reinvented uh, Juche? Oh, actually, uh, Kim Il-sung asked, or Kim Jong-il, I should say, Kim Jong-il asked him to uh, write this Juche ideology. Uh -huh. So he and his scholars, you know, the, uh, uh, got together and wrote out this Juche philosophy. I'm sorry, I'll, 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 it's Kim Il-sung who uh, asked him, because Huang, you know, he studied in Moscow University, right? And he was the first uh, uh, student at Moscow University Philosophy Department, and so he wrote Juche ideology based on, you know, what he learned in in Moscow, the philosophy, and and he really thought he was going to create uh, a utopia mm -hmm. in in North Korea when he wrote this. And uh, what happened was he, Kim, Kim Jong-il took this writing, uh, uh, the uh, document, yeah. and transformed it into a governing document. And he wanted, he wanted a theoretical background backing for his own uh, administration. And Kim Jong-il uh, just changed, revised, redacted things. And uh, by the time he finished uh, 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 messing with it, uh, it, it was not recognizable. So, so Huang was actually sidelined in a way, it sounds like. He was, and he was very, uh, uh, he was very upset about that. But they did the create a Juche Institute, didn't they? There was a sort of an institute for the study of the Juche philosophy. And, and Huang, yes. he was boss of that, wasn't he? He was, he was a boss of that. And they would have conferences mm. uh, in Japan and he went conferences in, uh, of course, Pyongyang and, and Beijing even. And uh, uh, he did travel to educate right. others about Juche philosophy. But uh, what we know as Juche document today and what he wrote, two different things. Yeah. So is, was, his, what, was what he was doing, the work that he was doing for all those decades, was it actually something uh, substantial and meaningful in North Korea, or was it more cosmetic, more part of this um, external relations? As you mentioned, he was in charge of the, uh, the foreign secretariat and in charge of relations with overseas groups and bringing in investment and bringing in pro-Juche groups from other countries. How would you describe what the importance of his role was in North Korea? Well, because he gave, uh, you know, theoretical uh, backing for Kim Il-sung's Juche, and he actually believed that Kim Il-sung, you know, uh, had understood his Juche philosophy. Uh -huh. But actually, he later found out that Kim Il-sung really didn't. 
and he found out that Kim Il-sung didn't read anything, of course. And, you know, he, he talked about Lenin and so forth, but he actually never read huh. Lenin either. And uh, so, but he, he did provide a theoretical background for, uh, you know, to Kim Il-sung's legitimacy. Right. And also Kim, Kim Jong-il wanted the same thing for his own uh, administration. And he used it to perpetuate the, uh, the regime, basically. Yeah. What's your understanding of Juche philosophy? Is it something different from communism or socialism, or is, is it compatible with Marxist-Leninist principles? Is it something that runs alongside it or underneath it? How does it interrelate there? Well, I'll tell you what uh, Mr. Huang told me, and Juche philosophy is uh, based on humanity, humanism, mm -hmm. and it goes beyond what Kant or uh, Locke wrote, and he revised uh, some of those uh, philosophies, and he, he did, he wasn't crazy about Marxism. He was more uh, human. So he wrote this philosophy, anthropotropic philosophy. I mean, this is new, uh, as far as I can see. And it's a uh, uh, more, and he brought in the Korean uh, traditions and a Korean point of view mm -hmm. into the uh, uh, philosophy uh, and call it call it Juche. But Kim Il Sung apparently he mentioned the word Juche for the first time, but he uh, he really didn't know what he meant, mm. and until Hong actually defined it for him, basically. <laughs> Now, in your book, your subtitle, you call Huang Kim Jong-il's mentor. Yeah. It, sound, it sounds like, uh, as you described earlier, that, uh, that Huang had an idea and Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il took it and used it for their own purposes, just sort of yeah. keeping their name and some of the principles. Was he, was he really Kim Jong-il's mentor? He was because uh, Kim Jong-il attended Kim Il-sung University. And at that time, Huang was the president of uh, Kim Il-sung University. And there were a couple of times where Kim Jong-il actually uh, got into trouble, you know, a few times, and then Hong Jong-il uh, sort of pulls him out of trouble, uh, you know, during his college or university days. And during the, you know, uh, we can say his mentor, he mentored Kim Jong-il, but I should say, uh, Kim Jong-il really never listened to him in, in terms of Juche document, for instance. He just took it and, you know, uh, totally revised it mm -hmm. in a sense that uh, it's not quite what Wong had uh, intended. But, uh, yeah, but, you know, and so actually, you know, he, uh, Kim Jong-il did ask Wong for uh, opinions and views on certain things. So I call them a mentor. But it, it uh, sounds almost more like he was uh, Kim Jong-il's protector or enabler more than an actual mentor in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, closer 
to the reality then. Right. Then the, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, I've heard some voices in South Korea who suggested that Huang, when he defected in 1997, should have been put on trial for what he did in North Korea rather than welcomed as a hero in Seoul. What do you make of that? Well, that's, that's a point of view. Uh, of course, he was part of that uh, regime and he was a very high uh, official. But for almost look, 50 years. Yeah, uh, but in terms of politics, he was more of a scholar and the academician than a politician. And I don't think he participated in any torture or any uh, oppressive, you know, uh, events that uh, uh, the regime had participated. Uh, and, you know, sure, he was part of that terrible regime, uh, but the reason he defected was to correct that situation, whatever was going on at the time. And he believed that, uh, you know, Kim Jong-il, uh was about to go to war and he knew uh through his sources that kim jong-un had nuclear bombs at that time and also at the same time he uh, uh the starvation and the famine it just destroyed north korea and he felt compelled to do something and he had to do something and his, his motivation was there in that uh, side on that rather than, uh, you know, a bad guy from the north that it should be. But I don't know. That's a point of view I disagree with. And I think he, uh, his defection did a lot more for the overall, uh, you know, uh, attaining or maintaining peace mm. uh, in North Korea uh, in, in the Korean Peninsula than otherwise. Could you tell a little bit more about that? How did his defection actually help the cause of peace on the Korean Peninsula? Well, uh, he uh, brought in, of course, the uh, CIA, you know, uh, vetted him considerably too. And he talked about the nuclear bomb, and which you know nobody outside North Korea knew about. And he also knew how the North Korean regime ticked. And uh, the popular thought at that time was, uh, yeah, North Korea was based on Marxism and it was based on social uh, socialism, blah blah blah. But the real uh, instrument, the way North Korea works is uh, Kim Il-sung's 10 principles. Right. And the, Hong is the first one to bring that, ah. to uh, bring it out to the world so that hmm. uh, we could understand how uh, the Kim regime operated. And, right. and that way we're able to uh, respond or deal with them in a more meaningful way. And of course, there are other people who claim uh, that, you know, they, they were responsible for peace right. uh, in the Korean Peninsula. I, I guess we can talk about that later. But because of Huang's uh, personal sacrifice, I should say, 
because you know his kids were his daughter was killed his wife committed suicide i mean it was tremendous cost and he brought out uh what i think is the uh, the truth of how north korea works so that way mm. uh he was able to convince the uh so let me interrupt this. So the um, okay. so, so Huang had this uh, this Juche philosophy that he had come up with based on his understanding of of humanism, of Kant, of Locke, etc. But then you just made a very brief mention of the the ten principles, and for our, our listeners there, that's the uh, the ten great principles for establishing a monolithic leadership ideology. I think I've got that right. Uh, yes, which is um, it's almost like the ten commandments of North yes. Korea which were written by, I think it was a Kim Il-sung's uncle who had been a, a Methodist minister. He sort of wrote these as a, a way of solidifying the, the leadership ideology around Kim Il-sung uh, back in maybe the late 1950s, early 1960s. And certainly now those 10 principles are memorized by every adult North Korean and they are the, uh, the foundational document of how North Korean people live their lives and they are the basis for the weekly self-criticism and mutual criticism sessions. So that's the standard that they hold their lives up to, uh, not some airy-fairy, you know, vague Juche philosophy that's based on Kant and, and Locke or, uh, or Marx, Marxist-Leninism or any of that. It's these 10 principles, right? Yes, absolutely. You hit it right on the head. And you, and you say Huang was the first one to bring that text out and to say, guys, listen, this is what it's all about. Forget right. what I wrote. It's these ten principles. That's what's really the ruling ideology in North Korea. Right. That okay. is the uh, modus operandi of North Korea, and you know that's that's he. That's part of the reasons why the famine came. Uh, the total uh, inability to uh, the uh, all the ten principles. If you look at it. Every one of those 10 principles uh, is based on praising and following Kim Il-sung. And that's it. Right. There is nothing else. And yeah. all, all, everything and anyone does in North Korea is because they, they have to do it for Kim Il-sung and in glory of Kim Il-sung. And some mm -hmm. say that, yeah, this was based on Ten Commandments, Christian mm -hmm. Ten Commandments, and uh, and it, it kind of behaves like that, right? Because as as you say, you know, they have to memorize. Everybody has to memorize in schools, and uh, if anyone who violates these ten principles, they end up in you know jail. No, it, prison. It's, or, it's yeah. It's interesting as a foreigner visiting North Korea. I've been there a couple of times, and this document, these 10 principles are never mentioned, never, They're never, never referred mentioned. to. Uh, and when I went there last time in, in 2019, I asked if I would be allowed to buy a copy of these 10 principles in a book and take them home to study. And I was told that no, these are not available for outsiders. Right? So it so that it really is kind of like the, uh, uh, on the one hand, it's a foundational document, but also it's a document that's not open uh, to foreigners. Uh -oh. Uh, but oh, you, you, oh, you asked for you oh, asked I did. For I specifically it. said oh. I went every bookshop I went to and my guys, yeah. I said, hey, I'd like a copy of these 10 principles. And I was yeah. told no. Uh, and when I asked <laughs> my male guide, I said, you know, 
why not? Why can't I have a copy? Because, you know, you'll let me buy the entire collected works of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. Why not a copy of these, you know, very small book of these 10 principles? And, and he said, um, I'm not sure I'll get back to you with an answer. And the next day he said to me, if you were a Korean and if you believed as we did, and if you were also a follower of Ju Chen Kim Il-sung as we are, then you would be allowed to have a copy of these 10 principles. But because you are none of those things, this is not for you. Oh, uh, wow. Wow. Uh, but I, 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 can, should... I can give it to you. <laughs> well, I was going to say to our listeners, you can, in fact, find the entire text in Korean and in an English translation online. So it's not hard yeah. to find. Just, uh, just Google the, the 10 great principles. Right, right, right. Uh, right. I, I don't know why they made such a difficult thing about it. I mean, you can easily get it online, but uh, it's thanks to Juan. Uh, so in, in 1999, Huang published his Korean language memoir, The Story of His Life, uh, the book whose title translates to I Saw the Truth of History. Were, right. you ever, were you ever involved, John, in a project to translate all or some of that book and publish it in English? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's Chris. You're talking about Chris uh, and... Uh, Chris Green? Yeah, he, Chris Green. And this is the book. Ah, that's my the Korean favorite. Book. Okay. Yeah, it's a Korean book, and uh, I uh, translate part of it uh, for Chris. Right. And uh, I think he uh, it hasn't come out in English yet. Right. But Do you should. know what's become it of that should. project? It should come uh, out, right? It should. It's... Oh, definitely. And yeah. it's still in the progress. I mean, you know, process. I guess. Yeah. And uh, 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 Chris is the uh, right guy to do it because he, he you know, he's, he knows a lot, and. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, the portion that I translated is uh, his personal. The, just before he defected, he and his wife had a meeting ah. in a, in the backyard. Yeah, and Huang he took all the papers he ever created and burned it in the backyard. And while he was burning, his wife comes out and says, "Oh, what are you doing?" And she thought uh, this was very strange. They had met at University of Moscow. And uh, right. uh, anyway, she was quite a, a brilliant person herself. And she knew right away something was happening. Yeah. And so she started a conversation in Russian so that, you know, to, to avoid the... Uh, so no uh, listening ears could listen in on right, what they were right, saying. Right. Right. And so... Uh, he didn't tell her, but that he was going to defect, Ooh. and because if he did, she would be, she would be, uh, you know, implied as, as a conspirator and so right. on and so forth. So, but she knew because of that conversation in Russian, talked about you know Huang sort of, and that's as part that conversation is in this book. Oh, and so you know that's that's the part I uh, translated. Gosh, <laughs> uh, you met Huang a number of times uh, yeah. here um, between two thousand and four and two thousand and ten. Would you say that you became friends with Huang? Yeah, I, I became one of his students. Uh, I you know he uh, I I saw his vision, and his vision was to democratize North Korea. And he said that that was the only way. Uh, forget this planned economy, forget the socialism, 
Uh, in fact, the first thing he said when he defected, uh, he said he sent a message to Kim, Kim Jong-il. He says, socialism is dead. Mm. And, and he, he was determined to introduce democracy into North Korea. And that was the only way uh, North Korea could survive uh, as, as people. Did he not see, was he not afraid that democratization of North Korea would lead to an entire systemic collapse and ultimately a swallowing up of, of North Korea and absorption into South Korea? Well, yeah, he, uh, that was uh, his vision too, huh. that South Korea should be part of that. South Korea should invest in North Korean and run it, you know, like uh, the way, you know, Samsung and Hyundai and the way, the way it should, uh, should be run so that it would produce, uh, yeah, he mm -hmm. to see that. And his uh, ultimate goal was to, uh, was regime change because yeah. he, he knew it was impossible to introduce democracy, uh, you know, as long as the Kim family uh, was in there. Right. He knew that very personally, yeah. Now, just over 11 years ago, Huang Zhangyok died in Seoul on the 10th right. of October, 2010. Now, the 10th of October is a special day in North Korea. It's their uh, Korean Workers' Party Foundation Day. They often have some kind of commemorative or celebratory event on that day. I understand that he died in his bath in Seoul and that an autopsy yeah. revealed no poison or drugs and there was no sign of forced entry into his home. However, there had been some arrests of people uh, who had intended to assassinate Huang and who had come to right. South Korea on false pretenses, pretending to be Talbukja, pretending to be defectors from North Korea, but actually intending to, uh, to kill Huang. That's, yeah, assassinate. Um, yeah, yeah, and, that and, was and, attempts. Yeah. And, and he, he, would, he would not, if they'd succeeded, he would not have been the only person that that had happened to, right? There was a, uh, an in-law of, um, of the Kim family who had defected to South Korea and written a uh, quite a, a scurrilous, uh, scandalous book about uh, the Kim dynasty. Uh, and he was shot dead outside his apartment in Bundang only a matter of days after uh, Huang entered the South Korean embassy in Beijing. So, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not impossible for, uh, for North Korea to reach out and, and uh, kill you know, defectors that, uh, in South Korea. So do you believe Huang died a natural death? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I was, uh, you know, of course, very interested in the uh, how, you know, how he died. And yeah, I, I believe he uh, died, uh, you know, natural death. Okay. All right. Yeah. So it's just a coincidence that he died on uh, the Korean Workers' Party Foundation Day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah it's very, uh, I don't know, it's uh, memorable, I guess. Yeah. 10, 10, 10. Yes. You know, yeah. and and if he died and at ten a.m., that would be even worse. I mean, even worse, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but right. And then just a, a, over a year after Huang's death, uh, his mentee, his student Kim Jong Il, died. Uh, and then you published this book in 2012. Now it's a great time to hold it up and show the camera. Oh, exit Emperor Kim Jong Il, 
notes from his former mentor uh, based on uh, on Huang's memoirs and based on on your interviews with him. Uh, people could find it online. Tell us a little bit about that book. What will people learn from it? I published it. I, in fact, I intended to have it to publish it while Kim Jong-un was alive. But, you know, it was inconvenient. Uh, he died before it was published. Yeah. So I <laughs> inconveniently. So, Would it have had a different uh, title if you'd published it before he died? Uh, probably, yeah. yeah. And I, uh, I had to go back to the manuscript and change everything to past tense. Mm -hmm. And uh, but anyway, it uh, I, I worked it with uh, Mrs. Hun Guangzhou. Mrs. Hun is uh, he's my co-author, and he helped me a great deal. But anyway, he was Mr. Huang's academic secretary for thirteen years, and. He had a lot of information, and you'll get to. I hope you get to meet him someday. And uh, anyway, the the book itself uh, shows how Kim Jong Il elevated into power in North Korea, and you know how how vicious vicious he is, really. And or was. Past tense. Oh, now. was yeah, yeah. I was. I'm <laughs> sorry. I was thinking about Kim Jong Un again. Uh, uh, anyway, Kim Jong Un sort of has to follow the footstep of what's uh, engraved into people's minds for 70, 80 years. Mm. And Kim Jong Un, you know, when he first came in into uh, limelight, everybody said, "Oh, yeah, he was educated in Swiss, and he should know about this and know about that." Not true. Even if he knew about it, he couldn't do anything uh, about transfer. I mean, there were people, you know, had high hopes for reforming and yeah. blah, blah, blah. But uh, the, uh, he had to follow what people have been following for 70 years. I mean, he can't. He can. So in this book, uh, it, it talks about how Kim Jong-il uh, the pro uh, progression of how he came into power, and it should explain what Kim Jong Un can do, what he can't do, and it should, you know, the uh, understanding of the Kim Jong Un would be made better by by this book. That's okay. what I think. So it's it's still relevant now, it, almost yeah. ten years later. I think so. Yeah, and because uh, generally. A lot of I wrote it for, you know, for people to understand North Korean regime mm -hmm. the way it is. I, I try to do it in a, in a uh, very easy language for to understand. But the uh, it is relevant, germane for mm. to understand uh, the way regime operates today. Do you feel that Hwang Jung Yop? Uh, when he came to South Korea and, and when he wrote his book and when you met him, did he tell a different story about himself? Did he polish his story up and, and make himself look better than or more important or more influential um, or you know, less tainted by his involvement with the North Korean regime? Uh, hmm. Good question. He... Uh... What he did was he had written about 27 books and he burnt it all before he came. 
whatever he had, the manuscript and what. And he recreated these books by memory. And he wrote down, but I, I, I am inclined to think that he had to change some of the things mm. for, for the South Korean audience. Mm. Uh, because, you know, South Korean audience, they don't understand, you know, a lot of things, although they, you know, they claim they do. So uh, I think he, he did probably adjust. And there were editors who helped them, uh, like uh, Son, my, my co-author, mm-hmm. uh, helped them uh, change it into South Korean language. But that's talking more to... about his philosophy. I'm just sort of talking about oh. himself and his own story. Did he, you know, was he completely honest? Uh, do you think um, people have a tendency to tell different stories depending on where they are or different narratives of, of, of who they oh, I who see. They were, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 I see. Uh, I, I, I think I believe what he's, you know, he talks about when he talks about his uh, defection and his uh, situation, I, I think he's right telling the truth. Uh, because while he was, you know, locked up in Beijing, I mean, he, he wasn't, he was there for months uh, in South Korean embassy uh, because, you know, North Korean security, you know, the boy people, they try to climb the wall into the uh, embassy compound to assassinate him and so you know he and Kim Dokong both were locked up for about I forget three months three yeah and all their you know windows were boarded up and so basically it was a prison for him uh and what he says is I don't care what happens to me and he said he always uh, carried a cyanide pill in his pocket, shirt wow. pocket. And once he got that, he somehow got that through, you know, through uh, South Korean security people. Once he got it, he felt so comfortable. He felt at peace. And, that's, you know, and he told me that. And he also writes that in the, uh, in the book. And Comfortable, so, you mean, because he felt he could take his own life at any moment if he had to. Right. He was, he felt that was first time he felt at peace and he was no longer, you know, anxious, you know, about the whole situation. You know, anything happens, I'm going to take my sign of pill and that's the end of it. So uh, when, you know, when a person goes through and makes that kind of uh, determination about his own life, uh, I got to think that, you know, he, he's talking, telling, telling the truth. I mean, he, uh, this, he's, he's concerned about his own, his entire life and his legacy. And mm-hmm. what would I be remembered for? And I got, I got to think that he is, you know, there are a lot of uh, theories out there. Some people, you know, he was this, he was that. Uh, he left his family behind yeah. and to save himself and all that. But, you know, yeah, it's I, I understand all those talks, but ultimately, I think he uh, he did it for uh, sanity. Uh, he did it for uh, the Korean 
people as a whole. Did you get a sense when you met him that he was still, I mean, you met him in, you know, um, seven years after his defection. Did you get a sense that he was troubled by what had happened to his family? What position he'd put his wife and children in, in, in leaving North Korea? Oh, yeah. He felt very guilty about it. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, every day, uh, I mean, his wife committed suicide. Uh, his daughter. Uh, now, how do we know this, by the way? Oh, he, he also had information, uh, ways to get his information through uh, South Korean intelligence people or, and, and both. He had his, still had his own uh, uh, people in the, uh, his, his uh, uh, influence or sphere of influence. Yeah. And, you know, they say that when he defected, uh, the Kim regime took and rounded up about 8,000 people mm. and, you know, and took them to, you know, concentration camp to camps and so on. Uh, but he still had uh, loyal people. Uh, Mm. you know, along the way, and he got his information through them. And mm. he seemed like, I mean, he, he was up on all the information. Yeah. I was surprised at times uh, because Mr. Pack, Young Pack was concerned about finding his brother. And Young Pack asked Mr. Huang about uh, whether his brothers were alive or dead. And, uh, at that time, uh, the North Korean Hoibu, uh, you know, they were sending mm. Young Pak pictures of his younger brother. Yeah, oh. he's alive and blah, blah, blah. And send us money, send us money. Right. He, he, he kept sending his money. But Huang said eventually, yeah, I found out that you, your brothers are dead. Wow. And mm. don't send them any money anymore. And, it's always interesting to me uh, how both sides seem to know more about the other than you would expect. I mean, as you say here, uh, uh, Huang was able to find out living in South Korea what had happened to his his wife and his family, his children, yeah. his family. Uh, and similarly, uh, I had a, a guest on the podcast a while ago who was um, uh, visiting uh, both South Korea and North Korea. And while he was in South Korea, he had a secret meeting in an undisclosed location with Hwang jung You know, was not in a public place. And he didn't even know where he was because he switched cars a number of times and was being driven to a secret location and, and met Hwang. And then a few days later, he was in North Korea and the North Koreans said to him, so we understand you met Hwang when you were in Seoul. And he's like, well, how do they know that? You know, it, it, always, it amazes me. And then I, I once knew a, um, an American man, he's, he's since passed away, but he had married a North Korean defector. Uh, and he said they had a, uh, a, uh, an unlisted uh, home phone number uh, and they would get threatening phone calls from people with North Korean accents, you know, saying, well, we know who you are and, you know, we know how to get to you. And you always wonder, well, how, how's that getting up there? So it, it does seem sometimes that the, the border for information is a bit more porous than you would expect. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I believe that Huang was involved in setting up a kind of North Korean government in exile with other elite defectors, intellectuals, and so on. What did you know about these efforts? And, and what, yeah, we'll start with that. 
Well, he, uh, well, what he told me was, you know, uh, the exile, government in exile, it's kind of ridiculous because I am in South Korea now. And South Korea is also my country. And why would I send, set up an exile government? And there were a lot of people you know, in, in the States, mostly. Uh, some people wanted, you know, Hong to set up an exile government, but he refused them all. Uh, he didn't see much sense in that. Oh, okay. So he wasn't involved in an exile no. government then. Okay. No, no. But he did link up with other... Uh... Um, you know, prominent. Uh, there was one guy. I, I'm not sure if he's still alive. Um, he was a secretary to the South Korean domestic communist leader Park Hong Yong, um, mm. and had left North Korea during the very first purges in the 1950s after the Korean War, uh, and had himself smuggled to Japan to Tokyo. Um, I may still have his book around here somewhere. Yeah, what was his name? Um, oh. I'm, I'm just trying to think of what, oh. where is that book? Ah, here we go. Pak Gapdong. Oh, Pak Gapdong, yeah. Pak Gapdong, okay. uh, who wrote a, a book only printed once in the 1990s called uh, Pyongyang, Seoul Pyongyang Bukyong Dongyong. Yeah, have you read that? I haven't read it. No, I will now. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very interesting book, which also should be translated into English because there's nothing known about, very little known about Pak Dong uh, in English. Uh, but right. I understand that, that he and Huang were in talks together, if not about a government in exile, then certainly in, uh, uh, you know, an intellectual network of uh, elite defectors from the top levels. Yes, uh, they did. You know, there's some, you know, theories or talk about Huang was, you know, going to do a coup. Right. Uh, with the uh, with different different what, factions. But yeah, uh, defectors. And also he has some uh, people inside North Korea. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I, he, I wasn't part of that conversation. Okay. Uh, did you and, think that had uh, any realistic hopes of going anywhere? I don't think so, okay. I, uh, because that would take a tremendous, uh, you know, infrastructure, and mm. it would take tremendous coordination. And because Hong was, you know, in South Korea, he was almost a captive himself in South Korea, because Kim Dae-jung government kept a real close eye on him. Uh, in fact, when I was in uh, interviewing, when I was in his office interviewing him, you know, I mean, they, they, they were listening to everything we yeah. were doing. I'm sure the, you know, it's, it's, the file is in there somewhere. Right. But anyway, I did bring up uh, Kim Dae-jung uh, once, and he almost went, uh, he almost went pale and he grabbed his chair and it shook, literally shook. And he said, that's the end of this interview. Wow. And yeah, huh. and we ended the interview right there. Gee. And so, you know, I can, I can sort of glean what, you know, he was going through at the time and 
when Kim Dae-jung went to North Korea, to Pyongyang, to meet with Kim Jong-il, mm -hmm. uh, he, the one thing he feared most was that Kim Jong-il was going to ask Kim Dae-jung to give up Hong. Ah. And then Kim Dae-jung was going to uh, go ahead and turn him back, you know, send him back. And, uh, and he, he was fearful of that. And, you know, and he, he was not free to do what he thought he could do in South Korea. Mm. Uh, the, uh, when he uh, uh, went to Washington, D.C. to meet with people and so on and so forth, and that, that they didn't want to do that. And uh, in fact, North Korea, uh, broke his son's leg, you know, to warn Huang oh. not to say anything. And, you know, uh, in fact, his son uh, actually wanted to come to America to study. And young Pak, he was going to help him, mm. bring him over to, uh, to uh, America to study. And, but anyway, the... Uh, they kept real tight rein on him, and he wasn't free to move around. And he finally came, you know, to Washington uh, during the Nguyen era. So Huang Jiang Yup did, or, or his son did? Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Huang Jiang Yup did. Okay. Do we know what happened uh, to his son in the end? Uh, I we think they kept him alive. Hmm. But you know, as a uh, that was. 19 no that was till uh huang uh died i, I don't know what happened after right after that right. i don't have any information yeah. uh about his son but uh mm. he huang was you know what he was uh having real hard time was his yeah. grandson and he said he said you know he thought about his grandson every day mm. and that was the hardest part of his uh, defection, <laughs> and I, I I can see why. Yeah. yeah, I understand. I understand that. Yeah, now, I understand that these days you're involved in activism for North Korean human rights among the Korean American community. Um, what what can you tell us about the Korean American community and uh, attitudes towards North Korea? Yeah, uh, I, I guess you could call it activism, but. You know, it, it was uh, Mr. Huang who steered me, and he said, "Well, you asked me. You know, shouldn't be doing something. You know, <laughs> said okay, I will do something." So you know, I helped him with his cause, uh, bringing democracy to North Korea. And there's a group of us who do that, and uh, Kim Jong Un was one of them. And he's doing it, and you know I, I was helping him. And actually, uh, in America, people are sort of divided. Mm. Those who are, you know, the one 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 side of them, one side of the uh, people are they are veterans from Korean War, and so they hate communists and everything they do is. And you know, and they they denounce 
Moon Moon Jae-in right now, right. you know, because Moon Jae-in is too soft. Uh, Moon Jae-in is a poor communist, and so on and so forth. That's one side. Right. The other side, you know, and they're they they feel like, you know, they Moon Jae-in is the right thing, you know, soft approach and sunshine uh, policy is the uh, proper way to go, and so it's it's, it's divided. Yeah. And where do you, you fit know, on that spectrum? I, I would uh, probably go towards more uh, to the uh, well, uh, I'm not pro Moon Jae-in, if you ask me. Uh, in fact, uh, I write, you know, things about him that are not very well known, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things that uh, everybody should be careful of. And I like to think I am on the side of the truth, but people call me, I'm an extreme right. Ah. <laughs> and hey, you know, what the heck. What do you hope Korean American activists can achieve in relation to North Korea? Basically, what we can do is the, uh, tell, tell the situation, tell the truth, and work for you know, uh, humanity on, on the human rights of North Korea. And my ultimate uh, uh, vision is to bring democra- democracy to North Korea, like, like Huang's, but mm-hmm. we under- I understand it's a long shot. Mm. Uh, hope it happens someday, but it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Yeah. So basically what we can do is we can alert, uh, make people aware what they're up against in terms of, uh, you know, bringing or how we can help uh, people of North Korea. And, and we, we can poke holes in North Korean propaganda. And, we, you know, and that's how uh, our, our, and also, we're bringing uh, North Korean uh, defector students, uh, mm. college students. We're bringing them over to uh, give them English uh, language training. And in America. In America. Right. So we're doing that and uh, to broaden their education. Last question, John. Now that Hwang Jung Yop is no longer alive and Kim Jong-il is also now dead. Uh, who do you believe could be a force for change in North Korea? Do you see anyone that gives you hope? No, I, I don't see anyone. I, I don't see anyone that, you know, that, that is as provident as uh, Mr. Hong. Mm. And what he left behind is a group of people uh, who, who would continue uh, to, uh, his vision, and it's it's uh, looking more like, but we are all sort of like underground at the moment, uh, because uh, the Moon government, Moon government is not, you know, is not. Uh, they try very hard to paint a different picture or a bad picture about uh, any activists mm. that are from North and also. Uh, from the south, and uh, uh, but I'm hoping that 
the uh, next administration, maybe, and some of the, a lot of people that were in front of uh, doing th things for North Korea, they're all in jail now. Mm. And the uh, maybe when they get out of jail, or maybe the South Korean government administration you know, gets a new leadership or a new administration, they are not so sympathetic towards North. Uh, we can we can uh, find some uh, some light at yeah. the end of the tunnel. I don't know if I can say all these things on your program, but <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, as we you know, uh, yeah. th these opinions are your own, of course, John, yeah. and uh, yeah, they do not course. necessarily express the editorial opinion of uh, of NK News or the podcast. Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to thank you once again for coming on the show, John Haksong Cha. It's been a great pleasure to talking to you. Uh, don't forget, listeners, you can find books written and translated by searching for John online at, with the name John H. Cha. And his 2012 book is Exit Emperor Kim Jong-il. Um, so that's there online. Thanks so much for coming on the show, John. Thank you for having me, Jaco. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks for listening again next time. Bye.